You're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, and we are here for our Halloween Spectacular. We are joined by Brad Freeman, the author of the R Suite Mystery blog. It's so good to have you, Brad. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Felix and Ben. I'm really glad to be here. (laughs) My goodness. Today on the show, we are making our way through Agatha Christie's Halloween Party, a Poirot story. Herds and I have watched the David Suchet adaptation, and we've also kind of poked our way a little bit through the book. And my goodness, did Mark Gattis do a great job trimming this down for the television version? Uh, I've got the old pocketbook. So it's got like the longest cast of characters of any Christie book I've ever seen. None of those characters matter. And yeah. he <laughs> cut them all out, added a couple of interesting characters better than the book. And I think you're right. He did a wonderful job. Was yeah, the, I suppose. Old, the crazy old lady who like informs us of all the three murders, is that a new character? No, Miss Goodbody was in the original oh story. Well, but that's she- good to hear because in the adaptation, she stole my heart. So, you know, yeah. I think we know which is the uh, superior work there. I suppose to catch you up, um, essentially what happens is that a young girl is found drowned at a Halloween party and then Poirot is summoned by crime writer Ariadne Oliver, who's a semi-regular in the Poirot canon, to come and solve this crime. And slowly he unravels a weave of conspiracy in mm. the small town, resulting in the arrest of one outrageously suspicious figure. <laughs> but the thing that you were touching on there, Herds, that I really loved yeah. is Miss Goodbody, who is absolutely fleshed out in the television show. We thought that the actress who portrayed Miss Goodbody was wonderful. She did such a good job. She's been in a million British TV shows. Mm. She is perfectly cast. They give her a lot more to do. There's a character in the book named Miss Emlyn. She's a headmistress of a school and she does everything. And then they also have Superintendent Spence in this book. And um, they're both gone and Miss Goodbody gets all of it. You couldn't ask for a better Yeah, trade-off. I think the, the scene where she's first introduced where they just sit down and run through the previous deaths that have happened. Yes. Not only is it really well delivered because we run through these three deaths and then there's the obvious hanging question of what happened to all which beautifully sets up kind of the later reveal of her death, but also just because at that point in the story, we still really haven't established the conspiracy theory. So by introducing it with someone who just is a little bit off kilter is a really good way to seed doubt while still obviously being like the lead into the mystery weave of information. Well, you know, there are very few suspects. And I think Gaddis and the camera people do a wonderful job trying to add a little suspicion. So she does show up first at the party. She's not wanted there and they kick her out. And then the editing is done in such a way that we see her bolting away from the the house right before the body is discovered, looking Mm. as suspicious as she could possibly look. And uh, she is an old witch. So, you know. Yeah, I actually really enjoyed the use of the, the Halloween costumes in this movie. As you say, she's dressed up like a witch, which means she's an immediately suspicious to people that don't recognize the trope of like such an obvious setup. Um, even over to the poor child who gets murdered, who's wearing just the most ridiculous bumblebee costume I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> she's so deliberately cast and costumed as the dunce. Yeah, and her much-hated brother Leopold is wearing a devil's mask. Yes. So they're, they're perfectly costumed. Well, yeah. that was something I really enjoyed, that they use those costumes so sparingly. Even at the actual Halloween party, most of the characters are still wearing the, like, 
British aristocracy outfit. Even the kids aren't wearing like proper costumes, most of them. They use them very judiciously, very carefully. And I really, I just really enjoyed that. I yeah. Think. I mean, speaking of the costuming, one thing that you noticed that I didn't actually pick up on while we were watching Herds uh-huh. was that the two people who end up being our culprits mm. actually often have like matching pieces of their costumes scene to scene. Yep. So it's kind I of- I watched yeah, it it's, twice. I did not notice that. Really? Yeah. There's well, like one of the first scenes that they appear in together. Yes. They're both wearing purple. Yeah. For that family that we're supposed to suspect with Edmund and his sister and- and the, the actual culprit, they're all wearing purple. And then Garfield walks in and he's wearing the same colors as the family. Like we're clearly visually supposed to identify someone in that family as the killer. That costuming decision is so clearly deliberate and there. I, I just really appreciate it in the moment, you know? What did you think of uh, Francie and, and Edmund? Because they are not in the book. They're not in the book! Yeah, I was really surprised <laughs> well, to find oh that goodness. out. I um, thought they would exist as the like red herring characters because they seem so clearly defined and obvious in that role, I guess. You know, I don't consider myself a purist completely, but I always <laughs> ask myself, why are these changes being made? I do mm. think giving Rowena Drake two children is a very canny decision because sure. it fills her out as a mother, not a good mother, but a mother. <laughs> sure. And she's not. She's a very one note character in the book. Mm. And this makes her a little bit more well-rounded and yeah. um, and plays that kind of bad mother, bad town leader, overbearing woman really nicely. Yeah, um, and for sure. And help that. And the kids are great. Yeah, I think the thing that was especially good about their inclusion was because we have this whole weave of conspiracy of everyone moving behind the scenes, it means that Mark Gaddis and the team behind the show are able to kind of like deflect suspicion for each of the crimes individually. So for example, yep. Olga... And Leslie, they both have seemingly different motivations for their crimes early on. And that's kind of deflected onto the children and their involvement in relationships around the town. But it's only as we get further on that we start to kind of like narrow that focus. Can I tell you, there is a brilliant moment where Garfield, he's on the field and he sees, you know, the mother who he he, he had a fling with. But he sees her daughter and goes, ooh, and this is both supposed to set up Garfield as a gross guy also potentially deflect suspicion onto the daughter because like, oh, maybe they're in it together, but also sets up his attraction to her mother. (laughs) Like it's such a brilliant little moment just showing how gross this guy is. I watched this last week and then I watched it again this morning and I see the scene where Poirot and uh, Mrs. Butler, Judith, come into the garden and it's the Mm. first time that Judith and Michael see each other and they never Mm. say a word to each other. I watched her face and it is brilliant. He's so smarmy and she is looking at him like you are so disgusting. But if you know the truth, Mm -hmm. it is definitely a relationship that is played out in these non-glances. It's really well Yeah, and there's there's even a few of them at the end of the episode that they give to you, like the one where they meet and kiss at night during Guy Fawkes night. She has this stern look and that's when it cuts away the first time. But when they come back to it in the flash pack, you see it like brought into a smile. Yeah. That's the one that they give to you on the page. But that's just an example of all of the side glances you're mentioning there, Brad, that just pay out so well when you go to the Well, that's Mrs. Drake. I was talking about just the past between Judith Butler mm. And Michael, the fact that they created a child. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I hadn't confused that relationship. I was just saying that that's like goes on for both yeah, of yeah. his relationships in the story. Uh, yeah. And I think that Judith there is a really interesting one because yes. it's a mystery mm-hmm. that in a lot of ways kind of just doesn't matter. But because <laughs> they strange. tell it so well with nothing very direct, it means it both doesn't get in the way and the reveal is super satisfying, which is like the perfect combination. 
There's a little yeah. bit more on the book of Judith being dishonest, except since she's a newcomer, she's got nothing to do with any of the past people. She really couldn't be involved in a past murder that mm-hmm. Joyce would have seen. So all of that is sort of wasted space. She's a device to get Ariadne there. And um, none of the devices right. work very well in the book, but she's a wonderful character. I love Judith and Miranda. <laughs> two of the best characters in the book and in the show. Yeah, I think the thing that did interest me talking about Miranda as a character is so much of her airtime in the episode is just with Ariadne Oliver talking about this story that she's writing. And Herds and I were both watching along with this and thinking to ourselves like, oh yeah, this is obviously going to be like a metaphor for something else going on the plot. I have no idea what they were trying to do there. But that's some of the fun you have with Ariadne Oliver from the very start. Yeah. She's always caught in the middle of a writing situation and she throws out a bunch of little details and none of them really make total sense. <laughs> but the idea that she didn't ever quite get her research correct. Yeah. Mm. I need to know, Brad, how you feel about the supernatural nods during this story. Because like part of Michael Garfield's whole ploy is that he's uh, manipulated at Miranda to like do witchery with him. Is that as pronounced in the book? Does that make more sense in the book? I felt mm. that it was much more of a Greek. Yeah. Like, like, well, they're in the garden. They're drinking wine that's been poisoned. I mean, he even yeah. brings up like uh, Medusa. Yeah. And so he does bring up the concept of people being dunked to Poirot. But mm. I think the supernatural has played up a great deal more in the episode to the story's okay. advantage. The first sentence of the book. Mrs. Ariadne Oliver had gone with the friend with whom she was staying, Judith Butler, to help with the preparations for a children's party, which was to take place that same evening. And that's about as interesting as it gets for a a number of pages. They just sit around and talk and cut up stuff. Mm. The rest of it just feels like a bright afternoon with a bunch of people doing boring stuff to get ready for a party that's not very interesting until the kid dies. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, I suppose let's uh, wrap that part of the discussion there. We'll take a short pause and we'll be back towards the end of the episode to discuss the mystery in and of itself. And of course, tangent back towards the story anyway, because it's unavoidable with these things. It's true. You're listening to Death of the Reader, your murder mystery world tour here on 2SER 107.3. And we'll be back in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And Herds, we're getting down to the pointy end of the year. And do you know what that means? That means that means review season is what that means. It does. I wanted to kick off uh, this discussion of our review season rankings for the year, Herds, by commenting Mm -hmm. on how much better the floor is. (laughs) Uh, compared to our previous years of review season. I see what you mean. The past couple of years, we've we've had a real outlier sitting at the bottom of the pack, and I felt a little bad for it, to be honest. I don't feel like there are any weak links this year, which is good. I like we're consistently picking better novels, or maybe we're just learning to appreciate the trash. Either way, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's up to you to decide, you know? <laughs> well, I wanted to start breaking down our list of review season for this year. We still have two books to add to the list. We will announce the next one at the end of this episode. Mm -hmm. I wanted to start by saying we are going to put our last place review as kind of a last place asterisk Mm. in the form of our Halloween special as a whole. We're going to talk rather than about Edgar Allan Poe and about Agatha Christie's Halloween party, about just the notion of Halloweening 
in murder mystery. I don't know how fair it is to rank Poe in a modern age in, to begin with. So yeah, I'm I'm down for this. Let's talk about how how spooky we can get mm. in a murder mystery because we've had quite a few spook, uh, spooky stories this year actually, which I've been really enjoying. Yeah, uh, and this Halloween special kind of caps it off, right? It's kind of like the, the the punctuation at the end of the sentence of. Of, of the ghost going, ooh, spookiness. Let's just run through the stories that we've covered this year. I wanted to start with what I'm kind of considering as our, like, bottom four, mm. which would be Magpie Murders, Inspector Imanishi Investigates, The Master Key, and Murder on the Way Herds. Yeah. Can, can I tell you, three of those I feel kind of uh, justified in. I feel like The Master Key, like, I really enjoyed that, but it's, you know, it's. It, I feel like that is in the lower sort of category. We've had so many fantastic novels and, uh, and and murder on the way, like that's a fantastic read, but it's a little bit silly, a little bit racist. Inspector mm-hmm. um, Imanishi, you know, it's been a while. Kind of expected that one would, would sink to the bottom. But Magpie Murders, like, uh I I kind of wanted to put it put it higher, but I feel like it's 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 just on the cusp, yeah, of of being in that in that higher bracket, you know. It's, well, it's yeah, I mean, the thing call. is, is that like being down at the bottom of the list on review season isn't the worst fate in the world. No. I wanted to just quickly break down in case you aren't aware how we kind of do these rankings is that we pick what we'd recommend the most. And then if we have things we can't pick between, we compare them based on which has the strongest mystery. And if we can't break them down by that, we then go to the book with the strongest message, the most to say, the most interesting themes. And that's kind of how we rank this list. So I think going on that, last place is going to be Murder on the Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Inspector Imanishi <laughs> investigates up next, then Magpie Murders and the Master Key. I'd say yeah. Ma- Master Key and the Magpie Murders are definitely the two hardest ones to pick between here. Yeah. But the Master Key with its like analysis of how women are treated living by themselves in that time period in Japan is yeah. just so gripping. I mean, I feel like in, in previous years of review season, we've more talked about just what books are most accessible to, to people and which have the strongest mystery for tiebreakers. But the strongest message is something that I definitely want to focus on. So I'm glad we're kind of considering that. And I feel like the master key definitely, you know, it edges out the competition in that regard it has such a strong, uh, strong thing to say about, you know, these, these single women who can, who can get stuff done. It's great. Then the next four we have is, and then there were none the lamplighters and then two of two of our kind of gamey specials yeah dead little roosters and the obra din herds how do you think they stack up against our ranking system oh my goodness i mean this is a tough one because like nine times out of ten i want to pick like the interactive murder mystery you know the <laughs> dead little roosters and the obra din like i want to put them at like number one on the list at all times mm-hmm. but we have to look at you know how complete are they are they? Do they actually have a good mystery in them? For example, I, I would feel dirty putting dead little roosters above and then there were none. And <laughs> by the same token, I would feel a little bit dirty putting the Obra Din above the Lamplighters because those two like those two sets of books there, they uh, they kind of do similar things, but you know, in a, in a slightly different approach, you know? But I think that also kind of pairs them up nicely there because the Obra Dinn and the Lamplighters do a very similar thing and are really good as a comparison piece. Absolutely. And I think ranking them together is kind of important, but I, I've, I've got to put the Lamplighters one higher. I mean, the Lamplighters has such a strong ending, like, yeah. compared with the Obra Dinn, uh, as much as we enjoyed that. And and uh, let's let's be clear, our ranking system intentionally does favor books here a little bit. It does. Uh, just because that's what the show's about. It's about books. It's about 
murder mystery, but you know, technically, we, we've 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 got to pay for our sins in some we way. We have or to another. pay for our sins. That's okay. I'll I'll get my payment in full by the end of this. I'm sure. So dead little roosters, and then they went on Oprah in the lamplighters. Then we have our top five, the best. Let's just talk best. about uh, five to three here. Oh, the last express being in third place. Zodiac Murders in fourth and the Thursday Murder Club in fifth. Yeah, yeah. It's, I it's would tough, love stuff though. Yeah, I would love to put the Thursday Murder Club so far up this list <laughs> because it's so easy, it's so accessible, it's so open. Well, this is the thing. They all do different things very well, right? Like the Thursday yeah, Murder Club very different things. is the book that we would recommend as being the most accessible. It is so easy to pick up and put down. The Tokyo Zodiac Murderers, I think, has the strongest mystery here. Definitely. Which is great, and I love that. But The Last Express, which, like, if I was on my own, I'd put this at number one. But, you know, we, we can't have <laughs> I everything. I know you would. The Last Express has, I would say, the strongest message in the way that it explores, like, the political yeah, time yeah. that it lived in. It explores World War II in such extreme detail and just the amount of work that went into making that game and how, what an enigma it is, how few people actually played it, like... Yeah, oh, I mean, th- these three in the list, you can basically see our ranking system at work here. We would yeah. recommend all three of these the same. For a different reason. But Zodiac and The Last Express have a slightly stronger mystery, we think. And then of Zodiac and The Last Express, Last Express has a stronger message. Absolutely. We, we put these technicalities in to make what is an extremely painful <laughs> exercise for us a little bit easier. So yeah. even though we are putting the Thursday Murder Club in a fifth place out of that pack of three there. It's fantastic. Uh, it is it is absolutely wonderful. And then our last two I was going to say, speaking of painful decisions, <laughs> I don't know that I'm 100% on the last two. I don't know I which don't one. I don't think our ranking system <laughs> is prepared for the no, last two. I don't think that numbers do this justice. Uh, we, we have the, the Decagon House Murders and Crossing the Lines mm-hmm. uh, in our top two positions. And I cannot decide which should take first place. Yeah. Because Solari Gentil is a golden goddess, of course. Yes. I I would recommend these both the same. They both have incredibly strong mysteries, but strong mysteries in completely different ways. Yeah. Decagon House Murders is very much locked room, classic style, modern, you know, framing. Mm -hmm. Whereas Crossing the Lines is here is what the mystery is like behind the scenes. They're yeah. both because, like, if this if we were doing this like five years ago, I'd be like, ah, oh, the deconstruction is more cleverer because it's deconstructing something and that makes it inherently better. But like, I I don't know. The Deacon House has just got such a good mystery and such a good set of twists, and like the island versus the mainland mystery is fantastic. Here is a question for you. We said when we had Solari Gentil on, though, uh, we were going to make the Solari Gentil Award. We did. Now the strongest message criteria leans a little bit more to crossing the lines interesting interesting because it has something to say about the genre even though they both do like a little bit of deconstruction and the relationship of the reader to the page Mm. but if we're going to do a solari gentle award and we've already given solari gentle a second place on this show (laughs) do do we as as a matter of of uh, of respect (laughs) here Give Solari Gentle the first place award and just name the first place award oh. the Solari Gentle award. Or do we uh, give it to the Decagon House Murders and make second place forever the Solari Gentle award? <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like if Solari Gentle just wins second place every single every single year of this show, I think that would be a fine outcome. <laughs> I I'm <laughs> Like I'm, I'm kind or of leaning here's, towards. Here's the an idea house, for you. Like, How hard, about we tough. put crossing lines in second, but we name the first place award the Solari Gentle. That sounds good to me. That's a good compromise. So, <laughs> Solari Gentle uh, is now required legally, I think, to present the Decagon House Murders with the Solari Gentle Award. 
and Slurry Gensel will receive the second place award. Uh, we we may have second <laughs> thoughts on this particular decision before yeah. the final rankings come out it's at, at the one. end of the year, but I think I think I can rest with that for for the moment. The first place award here on Death of the Reader from now on is the Solari Gentle Award. Sounds great. Stay tuned as to whether we will actually give Solari Gentle her own award or whether we will just have her presented. I'm cheering for you, Solari. I'm cheering for you. I promise. <laughs> this is Death of the Reader. We are discussing. Agatha Christie's Halloween party and we'll be back with more in just a second. The man is losing it. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are joined by Brad Freeman from Our Sweet Mystery, a blog we'll have linked up on the podcast if you want to check out. By the way, it's been lots of fun reading that through, and it's so good, as I said at the start of the show, Brad, to have you here with us today discussing Agatha Christie's Halloween party. Thank you. Well, let us dive into this mystery, because I think the thing that struck me the most is that I, I don't know if it's just I haven't read enough Christie, or I don't know if it's I've read too much Christie, but reading through this plot, I was like, haven't I seen every trick here before? Yeah. It feels very by the numbers. I'm not going to give away any other books because I don't know what you guys have read, but there are basically (laughs) two previous mysteries where Poirot and Mrs. Oliver team up that basically lift the plot line straight out of this. The first is uh, Dead Man's Folly, where um, a girl, it's the first time I think she ever killed off a child in my memory. Um, and um, it's done in a very interesting setting. I'm, it's not my favorite mystery either, but it's better than this one. But then the other is Mrs. McGinty's Dead, one of my favorite Christie mysteries. And that one regard, involves Poirot coming to a village to try and figure out if a man who was convicted of a, of a char lady's murder actually did it or not. Superintendent Spence says he didn't. And it leads Poirot into delving into past crimes. Here we've got those past crimes again. Here we've got a kind of a setting of a child being murdered. But meh. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. what's most interesting about that to me is that uh, having gone through the book, it seems like both of those other incidents are referenced explicitly in the book. It's not in the episode, but like Ariadne Oliver from memory says uh, that she, she doesn't want to ever see a child. Like she, she says something to the effect of never again, which is clearly a reference to uh, Dead Man's Folly there. And it's so fascinating that like, despite being entirely aware of how unoriginal this story is in a lot of ways agatha christie just lent into it she did and and you know and then i mean we won't i won't won't give everything away but you know olga Semenov disappears and everyone's going where did she go and that takes us right back to dead man's folly too because we're dealing with a kind of an architectural figure this time a landscape architect and a structure or a garden that hides a deadly secret. Same secret, you know? Sure. Yeah. So it's, again, it's just like retreading. And I, you know, I feel for her. She's my favorite author in the world. But by now she's kind of, she's <laughs> yeah. on reruns. It was yeah, actually sure. really interesting because uh, I was I was having a poke back through the Decagon house murders because someone left a comment on an older episode uh, while I was researching this and kind of comparing Christie's use Uh, And by extension, Mark Gaddis's use of a like architect villain to Yukido Ayatsuji, who his mansion murder series like has an arch nemesis in the form of uh, Seiji Nakamura through that franchise. Michael 
who ends up being the criminal in this, who's all there to uh, get the garden and ends up getting a Greek isle unto himself though, that he would have had if he wasn't caught. You know, it's a very similar archetype, but Michael in this one, there's nothing ever really explicitly about his work that we find out that leans into the crime. It's just, he does gardens. And that's kind of <laughs> the extent that it plays in, you know, along with the symbolism of, you know, creating life and the witchcraft of it. But it doesn't really ever get fleshed out in that's that the way. Thing. Like, I was telling you as we were watching it, like, he falls into a weird position as a character. Like, I think he's really well characterized in the way that he acts and the way that he, like, talks to people and he kind of goads Poirot. But he falls, in terms of his actions in the story, into almost into the thug archetype, which I love. Because he's, like, doing the murders of the people that don't really matter. He's moving bodies around. He's lying to little kids. He's doing all the stuff that I would expect to see a run-of-the-mill thug to do. Um, but he does lend that, like, charisma to it. But I guess, yeah, it's kind of weird that, like, he's he, he's supposed to be this architect, this appreciator of fine arts. And yet he's doing thug work. What What is happening there? How do we end up with this character, you know? It's very bizarre to me. I do not find he's not my favorite part of this of this episode. I think the the Michael of the book is a little more odd, mysterious, kind of of the earth. You kind of feel that Miranda is caught up in him being almost like a pan figure, um, you know, like, yep. or, or a Robin fellow, kind of a, a supernatural figure, a mythological figure. And that when he says to her, there needs to be a sacrifice, that was all done in the book in a kind of a very holy way. Yeah, it is de- delivered a little strangely in the episode. Like Michael, in terms of his portrayal in the episode, has this like almost city slicker edge yeah. that I feel undercuts some of that mysticism that's meant to be in his character. And this Miranda doesn't buy it for a minute. She keeps mm. looking at me. It's like, it's time to sacrifice yourself. What does it taste like? Oh, it can taste like whatever you want it to. It's magical. Um, hmm. And so then he grabs her and pulls her head back. It's like, drink the freaking poison. And she's, you know, then Poirot comes and bops him on the head. Oh, that, oh my such goodness. a good moment. He runs in. <laughs> He's an athlete. Yes, almost to Kenneth Branagh Poirot, you know. He's very athletic. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they fixed nah. the mystery. Um, nah. and, you know, you were going to maybe talk about clues, and I can't. The one good clue is the dropping of the vase. And, oh, um, yes, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's, that's, and that's the a great clue, clue, right? It's a great clue. Yeah. I think it was also the only clue while we were watching the episode that I exclaimed out loud while I, while we were watching it. Like, oh. it was like the third time they played the clip and I was like, oh, she was already wet because of the pool. It's done well here. And and it's not even seen in the book by Mrs. Oliver, but they all want to always build up Zoe Wanamaker's role, particularly since she spends most of this in bed. Yeah. <laughs> which is really strange. She's a time walking around, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's interesting that they kind of switch that around, A, so they could get the, their value for money out of Zoe Wanamaker, but also it also gave them kind of room to give other characters things to do because I, I think it was Miss Whitaker who's the, the teacher in the story because they also, in this adaptation, insert she was in love with Janet White, Beatrice White in the episode, who instead of being strangled and drowned, committed suicide. I think it's beautifully done. It's, you know, the the, the series, both Suchet's Poirot and uh, the later Miss Marple insert mm-hmm. homosexuality a lot of times where it wasn't in the book. It wasn't allowed to be used gratuitously. Um, Once it was resolved, it was resolved. And um, nobody gets into a lot of discussion about it. The one person you do see who seems to view it kind of approvingly is Judith Butler. And that's Mm. really nice. That little moment between 
Judith and Miss Whitaker, where she says, you know, it's always hard when we lose someone we love. I know what you're going through. Um, although I don't know who she lost because I don't see how she can compare Michael to this. Yeah, it it is a very interesting line in hindsight, isn't it? Yeah. Because I, I think the implication is that, like, the version of Michael she thought she loved is lost to her. And that, like, this idealized version of him has, she realized he was yeah, has died in her mind. But it kind of has a very different weight in that context. I also want to say, sure. because this is your Halloween episode, that one of the things that I thought this this seri- this uh, episode did so well was it sort of turned Rowena Drake and Michael Garfield into the, the two guys in Scream. It mm-hmm. turned them into these psychopathic monsters who kill and kill and kill and kill and kill. Yeah. You don't feel that. I mean, they obviously yeah. did rack up some bodies in the book, and it doesn't. It feels bloodless. But here, mm-hmm. you know, they killed two children. They killed Olga Semenov. They killed Leslie Farriers. The chop, 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 and then they go and hug a lot, and then you know, her her biggest come up, <laughs> even though she'll be she'll hang eventually, is that he says, "I don't love you." Like that's the highlight of his performance to me is just how ruthlessly dry he delivers the "I didn't love you." I got an island now. Suck it. I thought she was going to stab him. Honestly, yeah, yeah. I did too. She got to her knees. I thought she was going to go. Eh, eh, eh. Yeah, I was like, pull out the knife, get him. <laughs> Alrighty, well. Unfortunately, that is all of the time that we have for you today here on Death of the Reader. Thank you so much to you, Brad, for joining us here this week. We'll have links, as I said, up on the podcast if people want to check out more of your work. And I'd highly recommend that people go and do that because it's a very entertaining read. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. I had a great time. You're listening to Death of the Reader. This is your murder mystery world tour. Herds, I got something to tell you. Uh Uh-oh, I'm scared. We got a book to go through next week. What kind of book? Tell me. Are you uh, are you ready? I'm ready for anything. <laughs> We're diving back into translated works next week. Yes. Sounds like fun. Where are we going? We are going to Maria Angelica Bosco with Death Going Down, one of Argentina's best crime novels. Argentina! Yes! I would never have picked that. I was going to say like Switzerland or like Russia or something, but like Argentina? Sign me up. Let's have a holiday. I am very excited for this. This is another one in the Pushkin Vertigo series, which we've really enjoyed so far and are really good if you're into your translated fiction. We're going to be covering chapters one to three of this story next week on the show. So I hope you're looking forward to that. Best of luck, herds. I better get crack and get reading. Let's go to Argentina. This has been your Murder Mystery World Tour. We are Flexin' Herds. We'll see you next week with Maria Angelica Bosco here on 2SER 107.3.